We're going to be in verse 18 through 20. If you don't know this, we're just coming through this letter together and we're nearing the end of it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. I'm going to read here from the ESV. So you can look on and read it with me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. Thank You for Your truth, Lord. Thank You for these certainties that are here. Absolute certainties that You lay out in Your Word. God, help us today as your church, as your body, to stand on these truths, to rest on them. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to wondrous things from your law today. You are the living God. And God, I pray that through your word, by your spirit, you would speak to your people, Lord, as we look into your word together. Everything that you do, God, this, the mysterious things that go on when the church gathers together where you, you comfort one and you convict another and you save a lost soul and you build up and encourage a believer. God, I pray that you would do all those things by your spirit today. Lord, we believe your word that says that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. God, please come and build among us today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, I want to start off and just talk about uh, the flow of thought from really backing up to verse 13 all the way to verse 20 where we're ending today. Um, I think if you can see the connectedness of some of these verses from verse 13, which we've already been through, all the way to where we're ending today. There's a glory, there's a beauty to seeing how these things connect together. So, so think with me through God's Word and how beginning in verse 13, you can look at it there in your Bible and how these things connect together. Think about verse 13. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So God wants us to have a knowing and assurance that you belong to him. That if you truly belong to him, he wants you to know it. Like a child that has confidence in his father. And then springing out of this confidence or this, this knowing that we belong to God are many Christian certainties that are given to us in the following verses. For example, verse 14 and 15 just after that. It says, this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that the Father hears us, we know that we have those things that we've asked of Him. So here's this certainty in prayer. That if we know we belong to Him, we know that we, when we go to Him in prayer, He hears us and we know that we have those things that we ask according to His will. There's a certainty there. And then notice how that connects with the next two verses. Verse 16 and 17, he gives us an example of just that. He says, listen, if your brother, that's a brother or sister in Christ. That's a saved person. If your brother sins, guess what you can do according to God's will? You can pray for him. You can pray for him. And he promises, I'll give him life. And so what does it look like to, to have this certainty that we ask according to God's will and He hears us and we have those, th those things? It looks like this. Brother, sister in sin, pray for them and God will give them life. And then verse 18, as we get into our passage today, begins to explain the reason for that. 
He says, for those who are born of God do not continue in sin. Those, everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. So you can, with confidence, pray for your brother or sister in sin. And they will come out of it because God will give them life. Why? Because those who are born of God do not continue in sin. Because he who was born of God, Jesus, protects them. And the evil one does not touch them. As in harm them. And in the next verse, verse 19... Verse 19 begins to zoom out. And in verse 19 it says that we are of God. We are of God. The church of Jesus is of God. We're of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. So so zoom out. You see these things happening. In verse 18 people are born of God. In verse 18 people are protected by Jesus. In verse 18, you see those things happening to individuals will zoom out. And what's the big picture? There's a group of people that are of God called the church. And there's the whole rest of the world that is in the power of the evil one. And then you get to verse 20 and you get this, this, this other certainty that's laid out for us. We know, we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come. Come where? Where has He come? He's come into this sin-soaked world. He's come, the Son of God has come into this world over which Satan seems to reign. He's come into the world that He might bring out for Himself a people who know Him, according to verse 20. And who are united in Him, according to verse 20. And then this section ends. You see the connectedness of this section of Scripture. It ends with proclaiming that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true God at the end of verse 20, and He is eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? This connectedness of this scripture. It's beautiful truth here. And here's where I want us to start. I want us to, to begin thinking through this passage of scripture, particularly verse 18 through 20. I want us to start thinking through the idea of Christian certainties. There are absolute certainties found in the Word of God. And these are Christian certainties that are laid out for us in this passage of Scripture. This letter, the letter of 1 John, was written to bring certainty into God's people. Certainty that had been lost is going to be reestablished of assurance and certainty in God's people. And this letter ends, it caps off with a declaration of several certainties. Things that we know are laid out for us at the end of 1 John. Look, look at verse 18. How does it begin? We know. Look at verse 19. How does it begin? We know. Look at verse 20. How does it begin? And we know. We know something. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Here's these absolute certainties getting put before us in this passage of, of Scripture. Okay? So I want us, if you're here and you're born of God. You're a believer in Christ Jesus. You, you are, you've been made a new creation in Christ. If that's you, I want you to walk away. I want you to be a person who takes God's word and you rest, you stand upon, you proclaim with deep confidence the sureties, the certainties that are found in God's word. And specifically the three certainties, verse 18, 19, and 20, that are given to us in this particular passage. Now, before we go into those specifics, I just want you to think about Christian certainties. Knowing that there are rock solid Christian certainties that we can stand on ought to be a breath of fresh air to us in this time. Right? In a time that seems to be marked by turmoil, pain, confusion, there's this uniquely Christian and uniquely glorious thing that we have these boulders of truth that we can stand upon with certainty. That's glorious. It's glorious. And before we begin to gaze at these specific rocks of certainty in verse 18 and 19 and 20, I just want us to be reminded that the we know list the list of things that are certain for Christians in an uncertain world, that list could go on and on and on into what seems like unlimited certainties from God's Word. I just want you to remind, I want to remind us of that and draw you in to think about the certainties that we have. Just let me put a few things before you. Think about it. 
What certainty can we have? What certainty can we put our feet upon when it seems like the world is collapsing around us? Where can we go? I want you to think about putting your feet on God's word. Think about Psalm 46. When it says the earth is being removed, mountains are being removed and cast into the sea. The whole world trembles. Everything's collapsing, collapsing around us. And what does it say in verse 1? God is our refuge. God is our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we shall not fear. That's putting your feet upon a certainty. Upon a rock. Now think about this. What can we know? What certainty can we have when we think about the wicked and, and ugly head of racism raising itself up in our culture. What certainties can we land on? I want you to think about it. We can land on the absolute certainty, the sure footing of God's word. And in Revelation 5, 9, he says that there's coming a time where God's people will be gathered together from every ethnicity on planet earth. And they're singing from the top of their lungs. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we can rest upon that truth. Or what about that rock that says that Jesus is raising up a church for himself? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what does he say about that church? He said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor free, nor slave, nor man, nor woman. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in the midst of these times, we put our feet upon the rock. When we're confused, when we're upset, when we're doubting God's intentions, what are rock solid certainties that we can stand on? Just think about God's word. Romans 8, 28. God works together all things for good to those who love him. Those are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 32. It speaks about if he did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How will he not also in Christ Jesus Freely give us all things. Imagine yourself standing. Where do you go for this certainty? Where's the rock and the boulder of truth that you stand on? And we as Christians, we as the church of Jesus, we flee to God's word. Think about it. If we feel unloved, we can put our feet upon the rock of Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us. And then while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we feel forgotten or uncared for, we can stand upon God's promise, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus says in Hebrews 13, 5. And we could go on and on and on. Are you carrying burdens that seem, they seem, be, they seem too heavy for you? They seem beyond measure. They seem above your strength. You can lean up to Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And there's going to be all kind of things that we don't know. All kind of things that we do not understand. But there are absolute certainties. We know, we know, we know. The we know list goes on for a long, long time. And we can stand on it in God's word. Now I want you to know this. Our world does not think like this. This is the church that thinks like this. The world does not think like this. And specifically our culture has been injected with something that many people call relativism. Think about it. Relativism. It's very, very unpopular in our day to say that you know anything for absolute certain. And especially if that certainty bears any weight on somebody else's life. That's very unpopular in our day because we have been infected with relativism. Relativism does not believe that there's any source of absolute truth. But Christian certainty says God is the absolute truth. His word is the absolute truth. One preacher defined relative, relativism like this. He said it is the absolute certainty that there are no absolute certainties. Relativism, it, it says this, it says... What's right for you might not be what's right for me. What's right for me might not be what's right for you. It's all relative, right? But Christian certainly opens this book called the Bible and says, this is how we know anything. And we know the truth from God's word. Think about it. Relativism cannot help anyone. 
this dealing with turmoil. It can't help them one iota. You know why? There's no certainties to land on. Relativism, it, it can't even call murderous acts wrong. It can't even call racist hearts wrong. You know why I can't do that? Because it's all relative, right? What's wrong to you might not be what's wrong to me. And yet God's word says, Christian certainty says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is the truth. His word is truth. And this is the standard and the source that we go to for certainty. We're going to have these three certainties laid out for us in verse 18 and 19 and 20. But I just want you to think about this. These certainties are all over God's word. That's what it is. It is the word of God. We must flee. Run to God's word. We have to do that. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, everything. Sitting on the foundation of the certainty of God's word. And this is how we must respond when it seems like everything is collapsing around us. Psalm 61 verse 2 says, when my heart is overwhelmed within me, what do I do? I flee to the rock that is higher than I am. This is what scripture does. That we through the patience and hope, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now I want you to think about 1 John, this letter. 1 John for a moment. Talking about Christian certainties. 1 John was written to reestablish certainty and assurance in a group of believers. Their assurance, their certainty had been shaken up for reasons that we've already explained. So here they are with their certainty has been shaken up. And John's going to write this letter to reestablish those certainty. And he closes out this letter with three immovable certainties that all of us here that are in Christ can put our feet upon. We can stand on them with confidence. Let's start with the first certainty. Christian certainty number one. Verse 18. The certainty is this. That everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. That's the certainty. Those born of God do not continue in sin. So here's the plain sense of this verse. Those born of God do not continue on sinning. Next part of verse 18 says, But he who was born of God protects them. Those born of God don't continue on in sin. Why? Because the one born of God, he who was born of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, protects him. And listen to this. Glorious. And the evil one cannot touch him. The evil one does not touch him as if to harm him. Now, when it says... The certainty is those who are born of God do not keep on sinning. Is that speaking about perfectionism? Is that talking about perfectionism that Christians never sin? And I think the obvious answer is no. You literally could go back two verses, right? Just go back to verse 16 and 17. And in verse 16 and 17, it says, If your brother sins, pray and I'll give him life. So obviously there's sin. That's not what we're getting at. That, that Christians are sinless. Or there's some sort of perfectionism that John is teaching here. It's not true. All over 1 John we see that it's true that Christians sin. And for a Christian to say they have no sin makes them a liar. According to 1 John. But Christians don't sin like the world. It says yes they sin. But they do not keep on sinning. They do not continue on in sin. I want you to think about this phrase as an encouragement. Everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Think about that as an encouragement in the context here. Think about it like this. Are you in sin? Have you, have you sinned against God? Listen to me. When your brothers and sisters pray for you, you are delivered from that because those like you born of God do not continue in sin. Or see it as an encouragement like this. Is your brother and sister sinning? Are they sinning? If they are, pray for them and trust God that He'll deliver them because those who are born of God do not keep on sinning. Hear it with encouragement. And the reason you can hear it with encouragement is think about the question why. Why is it those born of God do not keep on sinning? Jesus protects them. He who was born of God protects them. I don't want to move past that. How glorious is that? 
Why is it that those born of God will not continue on in sin? Why? Why? Because the one born of God, he who is born of God, protects them and Satan doesn't want to mess with the one protecting them. It's glorious. What we see here is the continued work of Christ. Christ is a protector. We know that He did a work. He finished a work at the cross when He died for sinners like me and you. And yet He is still at work. He is still in action. He's still doing things. The continued work of Christ. Christ Jesus, our protector, according to 1 John 5.18. Just think about that for a minute. Quit thinking about Christ as if He's dead in history somewhere. Think about Acts chapter 1, where the disciples, they literally see Jesus ascend into heaven and the clouds receive him out of their sight. He's still alive. Acts chapter 5, we see Jesus is called the, the prince and the savior who is granting repentance and forgiveness of sins. He's still doing things in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 7, we see one who is being martyred for his faith stand up and he gazes into heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's still alive. He's still at work. Acts chapter 9, Jesus catches wind that his body is being persecuted. His bride is being persecuted. So he shows up to the persecutor in Acts 9, blinds him and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is at work. He is the great high priest right now. Hebrews chapter 7. It says, because he lives forever as our great high priest, we can be saved to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. We can be saved to the end. Completely, uttermost. Why? Because Christ is alive and he's interceding on our behalf even now. So right now, brother and sister in Christ, right now, think about it. Jesus, your protector. Jesus, your defender. Right now, He is all those things to you. He is preserving you so that you will be caught blameless at the end. You'll be found blameless in the very end. He's preserving you. The reason that you're going to wake up tomorrow, if you're in Christ... The reason why you wake up tomorrow and you are still in Christ Jesus, you are still a Christian, is because Jesus is protecting you. And that's awesome. Certainty number two. Second certainty here. It's verse 19. We are of God. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So think about verse 19 with me. Verse 19 zooms out from what we saw in verse 18, just like I said a moment ago. So in verse 18, we see what's happening there. People being born again. People are being protected by Jesus. We see what's happening with individuals in verse 18, born of God, protected by Jesus. And then as a result of that, you zoom out in verse 19 to see the big picture. And what do you see? You see we who are of God in a world that's in the power of the evil one. This is what we see. In the big picture. The we there. We know that we. Are from God. This, this we is the church. This is, a, this is a, a, a statement about the church. Of Jesus Christ. We are of God. We are not of the world. And this is a, a beautiful. In my opinion. A beautiful description. Or a beautiful uh, um, insight. Into what the church of Jesus Christ is. Think about the backdrop that's there. The backdrop is a world full of cor corruption and deceit and lies and darkness and hatred. It's a world full of that. And right in the midst of that is what? Those who are born of God. That group of people called the church that is born of God. So I want you to think about the clear distinction that's made here. Very clear distinction that's made between the church and the world. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. It's not you got those that are influenced by Satan. And you got those who are not influenced by Satan. That, that are the church. And you got some people kind of in between. It's not that. You're in one or two camps. You are either of the church of Jesus Christ. Of God. Or you are under the power. Under the sway of the wicked one. Whether you know it or not. That's not just talking about demon possession. Only two camps of people, the church 
and those who are under the sway of the evil one. Think about the distinction. Verse 18 says the church, it says this about them. It says, Jesus Christ protects them. And listen, the evil one does not touch them. In verse 19, it says about the world, they lie under his power. Clear distinction between the church and the world. I love this. I love these thoughts, this description about the church. Think about this with me. It's, it's this phrase. We're, we're in the world. The church is in the world, but not what? Of the world. We're in the world, according to this verse, but not of the world. I want you to go to John 17 with me real quick. Same writer, John, speaking in a very similar way. And in John 17, I want you to think about the church of Jesus Christ and ask yourself this. Do you think about the church this way? Is this the way you view the church? Is this the way you view the world? Or do you have a softy version of the world? Or do you see it as the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one? And what about the church? How do you think about the church here? Look at John 17. Let me just read a few scattered verses through here. Listen to verse 6. Jesus says this. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. The men that you've given me out of the world. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Imagine a church like that. you got the world under the sway of the wicked one. But here's these people who've been pulled out, yanked out of the world, yanked out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. Look at verse 11. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Imagine that. Do you think about the church that way? In the world, but not of the world. In the world, but yanked out from the power of the evil one. Preserved by God, right in the midst of enemy territory. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The world hates them because they're not of the world. Verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Jesus doesn't want us taken out of the world yet, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. You think about the church this way, that they are in this world and yet not of it. And Jesus doesn't pray, take them out right now. He knows, he means for us to be in the world right now and yet not be of the world. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The church of Jesus Christ, right in the midst of enemy territory, being sanctified by the word of God, being pulled apart from the world, set apart from the world, set apart for Jesus Christ, in His likeness, through the Word of God. Is that you? Is this the way you think about yourself? Verse 18, last verse. Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Apparently it's not an accident. Apparently this idea that we are, we are the church that are, that are in the world but not of the world. Apparently that's not an accident. God didn't accidentally leave us in the world. But he says, Father, just like you sent me into the world out of love to redeem a people for yourself. Just like you did that, I'm sending them into the world. Do you see the church like this? Do you see yourself like this? That we are in the world and not of the world and we're in the world for a reason. Sent to it, sanctified by the truth of God's word and yet sent with a glorious gospel. It's the reason you're still here. The description of the world is given in verse 19. I want to highlight this. It's, it's not a description of the world, you know, victimized and struggling to get out of the grip of Satan. It's not the picture. It says the whole world lies in the power. It's this relaxed, lying down, passively, willingly, satisfied in the welcomed embrace of the devil. This is the world. Do you see it that way? I want to dig into that a little deeper. The power of Satan. The power of Satan and his influence on the world. Think about it. Do you view it like this? The whole world. 
Because I know there's some of us that could very possibly have soft ideas about the world. And we think, hey, most people are for the most part good. And yet right here it says, the whole world. This is a shocking phrase. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Think about that for a minute. And think about the names that are given to Satan throughout Scripture. Shocking names. John 12, 31 calls him the ruler of this world. Does that shock you? If I asked you before now, I said, who's the ruler of the world? You say, God Almighty's the ruler of the world. And you would be correct. But there's another sense in which Satan is called the ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It's called, it calls Satan the God of this age. Little g, God of this age. Does that shock you? Think through that. Here's Satan, ruler of this world, God of this age, and the whole world lies under the sway of the, of the wicked one. Except that little band of exiles called the Church of Jesus Christ, right in the midst of enemy territory. Now think about this for just a second, because I want you to feel the weight of, of, of what goes on in this world. How could Satan, a creature that is not omnipresent... How could he have such control over the whole world? How could that go down? And the reality is, is he's not alone. He's not alone. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts or spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The reality is that Satan commands legions of unclean spirits all over this planet. Matthew 12, 26 calls what he has a kingdom. Jesus calls Satan's possession a kingdom. Revelation 12, 9 says it like this. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old. You're thinking about Genesis 3. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. In case you had any doubts about who he's talking about. The devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth. And listen, his angels were cast out. With him. He's not alone. Legions of Satan and legions of unclean spirits. A demonic realm. And I want you to think about this. He exercises his control. Through these principalities and powers and unclean spirits. And Satan exercises his control on this world. In more ways than you can fathom. Ways that you don't expect. Through religious ways. Non-religious ways. Demonic fear. Sophisticated unbelief of all things supernatural, racism, violence, apathy, lies, deceit, condemnation. And you can go on and on and on in the way that he influences the world. Ephesians 6 tells us that he has real, thought out, planned out schemes, it says. The schemes of the devil. Has real, thought out Schemes that normally go undetected. You think about the world in the midst of that. Second Timothy two twenty six. It, it, it talks about what they're like. It says it says they're they're taken captive by him, Satan, to do his will, and they usually never know it. Taken captive by him to do his will. So my question is, how serious do you take this? That we are the Church of Jesus Christ in the world, but not of the world. Not of the world, but in the world that is in the power of the evil one. How serious do you take his grip on this world? Because if you take it serious, if you really get it, then you don't just stroll through this world as if, as if you're just a, a, a casual person or a casual tourist. You don't do that. You move through this world carefully and soberly as a man at war walking through enemy territory. Do you think of the word? Do you think about your life like that? If you did, how would this affect things? How would this affect your devotion to God's word? If you knew the grip that Satan really had in the world. It's not just demon possessed people. It's not just that. It's, it's beyond that. It's all kind of ways that we can't fathom. He has a hold on this world. How will that affect the way you deal with the scriptures? You go to God's word and you say, I know that I can be deceived. I want to wash my mind and wash my heart in His word, in the word of the living God that gives me truth. 
If you believe this about the world and about the church, how would it affect your prayer life? Would you cry out to the living God and say, God, we're in the midst of this world. I want to pray like Jesus. Lord, keep us in the midst of this world. Protect us, oh God. Use us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth right in the midst of this world. If you think like this, how does it affect your time in the world, your, your prayer life? How does it affect your relationships, your, your love and devotion to the body of Christ? When you realize that your brothers and sisters live in the midst of this deceitful world. God, keep them, Lord. And you encourage them and you build them up. And you say, I want to protect these people. I love these people. It changes everything when you think rightly about these things. Last certainty. Christian certainty number three. And it's simply this. The Son of God has come. Oh, I love this one. The Son of God has come, verse 20. says, the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Christian certainty number three. The Son of God has come. So who is He? Who is He? I'm going to take four phrases that are right here in this verse to tell us who He is. He is the Son of God. The second person of the triune God. The second person of the one God. second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus Christ. The Son of God. When they heard Son of God, think about these, these maybe Jews when Jesus walked on the earth. What were they thinking when they heard Son of God? Many places you can go to in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 2. You hear in Psalm 2 that the whole world had raises itself up against the Lord and His anointed. Which means Christ, the Lord, and His Christ. And a little bit later in Psalm 2, He says, I, You are my Son, I have begotten you. You are my Son, Son of God. So who is that? It's the Lord and His Christ. It's the anointed. It's the Son of God. It's the one that was in that conversation in Genesis chapter 1. When the singular God, the one true God says, Let us. Plural, make man in our own image. He was a part of the conversation. He's the Son of God. Glorious Son of God. And it says, has come. The Son of God, second phrase, has come. This is in His incarnation. Okay, where, where the Son of God becomes flesh. He came into this dark world. The world... That lies in the power of the evil one. Christ Jesus interjects. The Son of God has come into the world. The Son of God loses none of His deity. None of His godness. And yet He takes humanity onto Himself. I can't explain it. It's amazing. That the Almighty One who created the universe. Takes on flesh. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Charles Wesley said it like this in a hymn. He says, Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity, our God contracted to a span. Why did He come? The Son of God has come. Why did He come? He came to rescue he came to die. You see that, that lamb, that goat that Dustin spoke about a moment ago. There was a real lamb of God who came. And he came to die in our stead. To die in our place. And the reality is, is that God cannot die. So the fullness of the Godhead in Christ bodily. He takes on a body so that he can die for us. And he dies humiliated as a sinner in our place, the wrath of God supposed to fall on every one of us. It comes raining down on Him instead. He took our punishment. He took it for us. On this rescue mission, He took it for us. He entered into Satan's realm and plunders his, plundered His goods. Aren't you glad that our, our former master Satan got plundered? And we were part of it? Third phrase here in verse 20. I want you to notice it. At the very end. He is the what? The true God. Jesus is 
God. He is the true God. Doubting Thomas knew it. In John 20 verse 31, he bows down before me and says, My Lord and my God. Paul the Apostle knew it. Titus 2.13, he says, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the earliest Christian creeds. You can find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where it says God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus is God. And right here we see the Apostle John. Jesus' most intimate friend upon the earth. And, and, and John says about his best friend who's ever walked the face of the earth. He says, that's the real God. That's God. And last phrase it says about Jesus, he is the eternal life in verse 20. He's the eternal life. Now that's an interesting title, right? Son of God has come incarnation in the flesh, the true God, and then eternal life. What is this eternal life? He is the eternal life. This happens more than here. This is how 1 John begins and ends. It ends right here with calling Jesus the eternal life. Go back to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, this is how it all began. Verse 2. The life was manifested. And we have seen. This is the apostle saying, we've seen. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard. We declare to you. So here Jesus at the beginning and the end. He's called the eternal life. You see the same thing John when John wrote his gospel. In John 17 verse 2 and 3. Jesus has the authority and power to give eternal life to whomever he wishes. And then he says. And this is eternal life. That they might know God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. That you might know him. This is eternal life. So what's the idea? What are you supposed to be taking away? I believe the idea is that. Think about it like this. Life. Eternal life is not something that exists outside of God. Life is not something that exists independent of God. He himself is life. He is eternal life. He's the source of life. He's the word of life. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus. He is life. In John 5, it says that he has life within himself. You see, every one of us that have life, and any life you know of, that life is coming from another source somewhere, but not Jesus Christ. He has life within himself. He is life. And so when God grants to us, think about it, when God grants us eternal life, he is granting us himself. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, it says this this is the promise that has been given to us. Eternal life. And the life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So when God grants us eternal life, He grants us Himself. This is glorious. This is our Savior. So think about it. Son of God. God incarnate, become flesh, fully God, fully man. The true God, the real God, eternal life. This is who our Savior is. And in light of that, I want, to, I want to mention two facts to you from verse 20. Fact number one is this. We can know Him. The one just described to you. You can know Him. It says it right here in verse 20. He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. This is the new covenant promise. And rejoice in this with me, please. Rejoice in this. That in Jeremiah 31, he talks about this new covenant. And he says, this is the new covenant I'll make with these people. He says, no longer shall each one of them ask his neighbor. And each one say, say, teach me to know the Lord. It's not that. But all of them shall know me. They will know me. You can know the eternal one. You can know the son of God. Let me give you a visual of this. Go to Luke 24. Go to Luke 24. This can happen in your life again and again and again as you grow in your knowing of Christ. Look at Luke 24. I'm going to read two, two little passages out of this. Luke 24, verse 27 through 31. Just think about what's happening here. 
a man shows up and begins to walk with these guys on the road to Emmaus. And listen to what he does in verse 27. And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, this is all through the scriptures, he expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him. This man that was teaching the word like this, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And listen to this. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. They said, Did not our hearts burn within us? As he opened, as he talked with us and opened the scriptures to us. Do you know that this can happen to you over and over again? That just like these guys were seeing a man. He's teaching these scriptures. And they're seeing that, but they're blinded. They can't see. Think about this visual here. And then suddenly their eyes are opened by God. And they see Christ for who he is. And they worship him. And now our hearts burn within us when that man spoke to us. In a real spiritual sense, you can have your eyes open to know God. This God, this, this Christ that we're talking about again and again and more and more. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And listen. You know, 1 John 5, 20 says... And he, and he gave us understanding that we might know. You know, we need our eyes open. Naturally, our eyes are blinded. We have a, an understanding that's, that's dumb. We can't get it. But God opens our eyes. He opens our understanding. Verse 45. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. This can happen. You have access to know God. How does that change your quiet time? Second amazing fact, and this is where we'll close it out here. Amazing fact is that not only you know Him, but we in Christ Jesus are united to Him. We are in Him. Verse 20, it says it. Let me get back there in verse 20. And we are in Him who is true. So we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. United to Christ. Think about that. Obviously, Obviously not a physical union with Christ, but a spiritual union with Jesus. The, the illustrations of this is given throughout the scripture are, are branches that are hooked up to that vine who is Christ. Or stones in the same building of Christ, and Christ is the chief cornerstone. Or, or what else, the, the body of Christ. God. We are members of the same body where Christ is the head. We are united to Jesus. Think, this is real. I want you to think about this. Romans chapter 6. Let me flip there. Romans 6. Listen to this. Listen to Romans 6. Therefore, make sense of this for me. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, do you know this about yourself? That our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Think about this for a minute. Real union with Jesus. Real united to Christ. God sees the believer, that's you here, as in Christ. Have you thought about that? When Christ lived the perfect, righteous life. If you're in Christ, He counts that to you as if you were there. When Christ died, really, 
our hell-bound old man died with him. He's been crucified with Christ. When he was raised, we were raised with him to walk in newness of life as a new creation. This is real. And we can say alongside Paul, Galatians 2.20, we can say the exact same thing. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this is a reality of union with Christ for the believer. Robert Raymond says it like this. He says, the scriptures make it clear that this non-material union with Christ is as real as though there were, there were in fact a literal umbilical cord uniting them, reaching all the way from Christ in heaven to the believer on earth. It's real. You're united to Jesus. Seated with Him in the heavenly places. Is that glorious? New covenant gift? Absolutely. I want to encourage you to take these certainties. These certainties that are found here. And you need to stand on them. You don't just need to know them intellectually. But with fullness of faith. Love and worship to the living God. You take the certainties of verse 18. And the certainties of verse 19. The certainties of verse 20. And you stand on them like a rock. That's immovable. And then continue that list on. The, the we know list. And continue to stand on God's certainties. Over and over and over again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for letting us meditate over it right now. God, I pray that if there's any here that do not know you, Lord, and God, there almost always is, God, I pray that you would draw them out. God, open their eyes, God. If they don't know you, open their eyes that it's not okay. This sin is a big deal. It's a problem that they're going to stand before you one day. Just open their eyes to that reality, God. I pray that they would fear for their lives and flee to the cross. God, save a soul who is lost here today. Show them your love and your grace and your mercy that the Son of God has come. God, I pray for us as your church. That you would help us, God, right in the midst of a world of turmoil. Right in the midst, God, of this world that is under the sway of the evil one. God, I pray that you make us a bright, shining light. That you would take Grace Community Church, Lord. And you would fill us with love for one another. Fill us with love for you, God. And teach us to stand on the rock of your word. We need you, Lord. And I praise you, God, that, that you so freely answer these prayers. In Jesus' name.